My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job, not just to educate, entertain, teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Holy cow. Is this market just one big game of Jenga? Was the DoorDash IPO the piece that took down the whole edifice? Felt like that when it started trading this morning, didn't it? At a price that was almost double what we thought it would be worth? Sure seems like it. The averages were holding up fine until we saw where DoorDash was headed. It priced at 102, then eventually opened at 182. And that's when the market rolled over. The Dow ultimately sinking 105 points. has to be falling 0.79%. And the NASDAQ plunging 1.94%. Don't get me wrong, DoorDash is a good company. I like the CEO, Tony Zhu. Interviewed him just this morning. We used this delivery service at our restaurants. It was admirable. Just a great way to generate incremental revenue and learn more about your customers. However, at these levels, DoorDash is being valued at roughly $60 billion. A little crazy, isn't it? I thought that this is stretch at $30 billion. I'd be thrilled if it got there. And that's where the deal was supposed to price. I told you not to pay up more than 100 per share because I didn't think it was worth more than seven times sales. Hey, believe me, that's a hefty multiple given the competition and the lack of consistent profitability. But the buyers paid 13 times sales. 13 times sales. Seems like a little bad luck, doesn't it? As the indications for DoorDash open, kept climbing and climbing ever higher and ever higher, no doubt fueled by over-exuberant buyers, the image of my Jenga tower, it, it just kept dancing in my head. I mean, after a remarkable borderline miraculous run for the broader market, a piece had been pulled that sent a big chunk of the thing tumbling down. It gets worse. Tomorrow, Airbnb comes public in a deal that could potentially be bigger than DoorDash. We have to hope that the rest of the Jenga Tower doesn't fall. But there's a reason I'm always warning you about the danger of the big IPOs to the rest of the market, right? So what's going on here? Has the younger cohort finally decided that they've just gotten way too exuberant? Or did they just buy DoorDash at the opening using market orders, forcing them to sell something else to pay for it when the price came in higher than they expected? I have to believe that actually we're going to see that we could see the same thing tomorrow. And that would produce two back-to-back really ugly days, bringing out a lot of bears. Remember how the market got slammed in September after the last wave of red-hot IPOs like Snowflake? By the way, I couldn't find Snowflake's name in the Jenga game. Whoa! We've got DoorDash, and then we've got Airbnb. Oh, and then there's the Robin Hood deal right around the corner. Three Jenga towers and then three collapses? Can the market handle it? I don't know. Maybe it's just a game. First off, I don't think this will slay the bull market. No. I mean, even if it weighs us down for a few days, yes. It's true that people using market orders took DoorDash to levels that maybe they were far higher than they thought they should have paid. With a market order, you never know what price you're going to get, which is why I always say to use limit orders. Sometimes you just got to take a pass. With a limit order, the transaction won't go through if the price goes beyond the level you're comfortable with. Of course, maybe some buyers thought that DoorDash would be like Snowflake. And that's a stock that opened at 100 times sales and traded sideways for a couple months for rallying another 50%, like a moonshot. But as much as I like the Dasher, okay, or Airbnb for that matter, hey, love staying in Airbnb, uh, use the Dasher, uh, they're not in the same league as Snowflake. 
Remember, Snowflake's a data warehousing company with business as far as the eye can see. I don't they can't handle their business. They've got too much business. Their software saves clients a fortune because it allows them to hire less experienced information technology people and then train them up rather than needing to hire or bidding for expensive Stanford graduates with computer science degrees. Doesn't any other school have computer science? Yes, they do. But people love Stanford because it's like really cool. Anyway, the company's in a league of its own. When Snowflake came public, there was nothing accidental about this explosive opening. With DoorDash, you don't need a computer science. Well, they got some computer scientists there, but I don't know. I mean, I got to presume that buyers didn't expect to pay so much. And judging by the decline in the Nasdaq away from the Dasher, they weren't as well capitalized as they needed to be. In other words, they didn't have enough money to take delivery of their Dash shares without selling something else. And that's what you saw. Remember, it was really the Nasdaq that they did the selling, right? That's the same kind of guys. At the same time, the money managers who got a piece of the deals decided to start reading the register. And why the heck, heck not? They were up 80%. They expected to ride this thing from 100, say, to 150 over the course of months. So when the stock opened 30 points above even that level, how could they not want to sell? And that's why DoorDash quickly rolled over quicker than a Jenga, uh, falling from 182 down to the low 170s. And you know what? At that point, it was looking pretty ugly. It would have been the first big deal to break down after the opening since Lyft and Uber, both of which took ages to recover. But then a funny thing happened. A DoorDash rebound. That's right. DoorDash stock bounced back near the end of the session, with the stock only closing at just under 190, up five bucks from the opening. Turns out there were enthusiastic buyers who genuinely liked the thing, even at the $60 billion valuation. And that actually is huge. The way it closed made me more bullish. I couldn't resist doing the Jenga thing, though. I mean, DoorDash had finished down from where it opened. You would have had a bunch of angry, disillusioned buyers who felt like dopes for participating. Enough deals like that, and it breaks the market spirit. Fortunately, DoorDash rebounded. So the deal only caused some temporary, it takes so long to build it. But you get the picture, right? Anyway, still, unlike DoorDash, the averages stayed down. Uh, But you know what? I think today's action was, I'm actually calling it healthy, all right? It was like a brush fire clearing out dead wood. Lots of gravity-defying speculative stocks finally got their comeuppance today. And maybe we'll see a little repeat performance of that tomorrow in the wake of the Airbnb deal for the bargain hunters of things that are not bargains. But we do need things to calm down. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this market is getting frothy with all the red-hot SPAC names and IPOs. It is too much, even for me. And I, I kind of, you know, I like what the younger people are doing. Now, you don't want a situation where the money seems so easy to, ma- to make that people start making big bets with borrowed cash. And that's, that is what's happening, uh, it, because they're operating under the assumption that they can't lose. Now, I am all for speculation. I'm actually really the only person who comes on TV and says that. But at some point, you've got to ring the register. If you let your gains ride forever, then what's going to happen is you're going to end up being pancaked like you were today. This is not a bad sound. I kind of like it. Between DoorDash today, Airbnb tomorrow, and then Robinhood in the near future, we're clearing away the froth, leaving us with a healthier bull market underneath. Ah. Now, one thing I've learned, when money managers sell everything to pay for the next big IPO, very few people will come on and tell you that the weakness is a buying opportunity. Instead, you'll hear the Jeremiads, right? The whole rally was a figment of the idle, rich imagination. Now we're reverting to the good old days when investors cared about nothing but earnings per share, price targets, whisper buying, spy sell hold, dictatorship of the proletariat. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. We're not going back. We got millions of new, very different 
attitude people, very different attitudes than their parents. These are the new generation buyers. These young stock pickers, they don't know when to fold, but they can get too greedy at times. Yet they have to learn that there's a price where they can lose money and that all stocks just don't go up. Now, they're only just discovering that market orders are the devil's playground. But the bottom line, this week's nightmare of the overcaffeinated IPOs won't collapse the whole Jenga tower. It'll just knock off a few unstable pieces from the top. After we process the new supply from these deals, we'll revert to a sturdier edifice based on the promise of these COVID vaccines and the reopening economy. Real positives that will produce real wealth. Phil in New Jersey, Phil! Hey, Booyah, Jim. How are you, pal? I am good. How about you? Good. Happy Hanukkah to you. Oh, done. Done your way. Thank you. I wanted to ask you a question pertaining to Alibaba. Um, You know, with the Trump administration passing the law, the delisting of Chinese stocks that don't comply with U.S. regulations within three years, uh-huh. And then the Chinese postponing the IPO. And do you think Alibaba is a good buying point? for? Yeah, companies? yes, it is. Remember, they, the reason I recommend Alibaba consistently is it's, it's the only one in China. Well, maybe JD, too, and, and, and to some degree Baidu. That really does have U.S. financials. Look, I got to tell you, I, Alibaba looks just like any American company, and it's a really well-run company. I like Alibaba. I've been warming up to the JD. I know a little late to do that. But Alibaba has been on my buy list forever, and I think you're in a terrific shape on that one. Can we go to Robert in North Carolina? Robert. Hey, Jersey Jim Kramer. Hello from Top Sail Beach, North Carolina. Oh, it's a beautiful place. My beach house is okay. I mean, it's nothing to rave home about. Yeah, you play golf down here? Not a golfer. Can you believe it? I don't really have the temperament. I think that if I'm okay when I'm on the court, I'm going to see the You know, so what's up? Hey, I got a question. Kimberly Clark. Yeah. Back in April, it it depth charged to 112. Oh, I like that term. I'm going to use that. Okay. August, it went to 158. Right. Then they had bad earnings the third quarter. Uh-huh. I mean, and they went like a depth charge submarine down to 136. Okay. And they torpedoes going down and down. Uh-huh. What's wrong with the management in that company? Oh, they're fine. I mean, look, they're in price wars with Procter and Gamble all the time. Procter's bigger. The Chinese give them a hard time. They don't have the raw cost down rate. But you know what? It's been an okay stock when you include the dividend. So I'm not going to back away from Kimberly Clark. All right, listen to me. It sure seems like a market is just one big game of Jenga, doesn't it? I mean, it does feel that way at times. All right. Uh, don't worry. Uh, this week's IPOs will not collapse the tower. Look, it's still here. All right. On Man Money Tonight, since 1969, 34 out of 45 years have seen a late Christmas or December rally. So is a Santa Claus rally on the horizon this year? I'm going off the charts to find out. And New York State's pension fund, one of the world's largest and influential investors, will drop many of the fossil fuel stocks in the next five years. As more shift away from more oil and gas companies, how is the best of the best Chevron positioning itself? Why don't we bring in the CEO, Mike Worth? Why not? And Americans with diabetes and related heart conditions are 12 times more likely to die of COVID-19 than those without. Man, those are tough odds. So let's bring on the CEO of Dexcom to find out if, it can t- if he can continue to help patients during the pandemic. And stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or 
give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. do with this market uh, it's now it's kind of take a little breather and it won't be that long honestly it won't be but it's, it's had an incredible run in many ways we are still in uncharted territory the averages are trading like the pandemic never happened although when you drill down there's been a big change in the market's leadership some of that's because we got the prospect of highly effective vaccines right around the corner but for the moment COVID's running rampant we're seeing more than 2,000 deaths per day that's only going to get worse as new cases keep climbing 220,000 infections Yesterday, you might think this would be a tug of war moment with the averages caught between a hopeful future and a grim reality of the present. But that's not how it's playing out, though. See, in the past eight months, the market's been taken over by a new generation of investors. And as I keep telling you, they are much more optimistic than their parents. Every night I explain how these young stock pickers don't play by the same rules as the professionals. They don't care about classical valuation metrics. Would you think they would have bought this DoorDash this high? Or the analyst expectations game? Or the big equity offers that dilute existing shareholders? That means the traditional money management toolkit can often lead you astray because traditional money managers are no longer in the driver's seat. So if you want to navigate your way through this new market, you need to take a more quantitative approach. And that's why tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Larry Williams. He's a titan of technical analysis who's been trading stocks, futures, and commodities since I was a little kid hiding under a lobby blanket. This guy's a legend. He's written over a dozen books. He's got important indicators named after him. And most important, he's got a terrific track record both in his whole career and especially on man money. Back in April, when everyone on Wall Street was talking about the sky falling, Williams looked at the data and predicted the economy would start rebounding in mid-May, possibly the best contrarian call I've ever seen in my whole career. He gave us a fabulous 4th of July trade. If you bought the S&P 500 a few days before the holiday and sold it a few days after, oh, you made a pretty penny. Last month, he laid out a Thanksgiving Day trade, pointing out that retailers tend to rally from Christmas through Christ- uh, Thanksgiving through Christmas, even if you might, not, might need to lean more into e-commerce this year. That trade's still ongoing, although Apple's up a quick 7% since you recommend it. Williams is always searching for these cycles, cycles that repeat themselves time and time again. Right now, he spotted a powerful seasonal pattern that could give the market its next leg higher, starting in roughly a week. All right, so I want you to check out this daily chart of the S&P 500 E-mini futures. The red shows the Williams True Seasonal Index, which is designed to help predict the major turning points in a given security. He practically invented this entire methodology, the Williams. I mean, everything's the Williams. It's the Williams because he invented this stuff. And now it says the S&P is looking at a brief period of consolidation over the next week. OK, and we're in that right now. Perhaps that's just related to this IPO choppiness I'm describing at the top of the show. But on December 16th, the seasonal forecast, OK, that we, it says we should start trending higher again. Then it predicts that the rally will go into overdrive a couple of days before Christmas. All right. Staying through strong through the last week of December and the first week of January. Wow. Wow, I like that. How about you? So now we take advantage. What do we do? How do we make some money off of it? Okay, Williams has run the numbers from the last 22 years. He's landed on the optimal strategy, assuming the seasonal trend plays out like usual. If you bought the S&P uh, futures at the opening on the fifth day before the Christmas holiday, then held for six days, okay, well, you would have made money 21 times out of 22. Look at this. This is this is gold, guys. Those rates. I mean, if you had any game, 
any betting, any stuff, any predictor, or horses, I don't know, cars, blackjack, you would do this over and over again. It's stocks, people. You could have a nice trade this holiday season by buying on that pre-Christmas moment, okay? See this? Buying the opening on fifth, fifth day before Christmas. All right, how about individual stocks? As I know a lot of you are kind of confused about the futures, but let's just go stocks so you know what we're doing. It's a $300 billion stock. We know it. We all have it in our wallet, Visa. First, take a look at the daily chart of Visa with its seasonal pattern in red. Williams points out that Visa tends to rally hard in the first couple of months of a new year, with that move typically kicking off right before Christmas. Visa is one of his favorites. So far this year, the stock has been pretty consistent about following the seasonal pattern, which suggests the January-February upswing is still on. His thesis, people splurge over the holidays, then buy Visa when they see their credit card bills a month later. What's the best way to play the Visa Christmas trade? Williams ran the numbers for the past 11 years, and he finds that you consistently made the most money if you bought the day before the holiday. That worked 10 out of 11 times. Okay, you see, this is holding for 35 days, days before the holiday. This is one day before the holiday. Obviously, that's optimal versus, say, seven days before the holiday. Look at this win percentage, 10 out of 11. One more thing. Last time we spoke to Williams, he told us about the Thanksgiving trade, how retail tends to run during the period of maximum uh, shopping between the two big holidays. However, he notes that retail names tend to be peak shortly before Christmas. They're not the ones you want to buy next week. If anything, he thinks you should be looking for opportunities to sell them into strength. Take a look at this S&P. This is a Spider S&P Retail ETF, which trades under the symbol XRT, and it's the one that traders usually use to describe retail. You can see the seasonal patterns turn against retail right about now, then stay ugly through mid-January. A lot of you I know feel like this is happening right now to some of the bigger retailers. I'm not sure because I think that the essential, non-essential designations may reappear given of COVID. But you can see this isn't the conventional. We didn't have COVID all these other years, though. But you know what? The charts... They tend to know all. It's not just the merchants. This is one that I also struggle with, but it's from Williams, so I've got to take it seriously. He predicts that Santa's little helpers, FedEx, United Parcel, will have the same trajectory. Now, I am a big fan of these two because they're integral to the stay-at-home economy, and I expect them to have a terrific holiday season. However, when you look at the chart of UPS, Williams' seasonal forecast is, well, it's about to get real ugly. Uh, you, I, I, you know, my chapel trust owns it. I gave a talk today at 1130. And I blanched when I saw this because I'm talking about Carol Tomei, new CEO uh, from Home Depot, formerly, of C- C- formerly CFO there, and uh, COVID. And then, of course, the fact that they've changed the price schedule. But you can see the exact same. Take a look at FedEx. I mean, it, it fed, it, again, it looks like it's time to take profits. This is hard for me because I, I, I don't like to go against Larry. I get where he's coming from. Historically, FedEx and UPS haven't been great at gauging holiday demand, so they end up having to cover high unexpected costs to get packages where they need to go. It turns out to be a nightmare for them. Now, here's some a dangerous phrase. I think it's going to be different this year because they have taken steps to adjust the pan- to the pandemic, and they'll also have big business transporting vaccines. The charts disagree with me. It makes me feel less certain, and I have to hate to say it, it makes you feel that way, too. Finally, one last kicker. William says it's time to ring the register on the airlines for the same reason. Oh, my, you know, he had a trade on American Airlines at 12. I, 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 I didn't believe it. They had just done a huge amount of stock. They needed a big offering. No, charts work perfectly. Now, I know lots of younger investors love the airlines. And Williams himself was indeed a big fan earlier in the year. But he thinks they're about to get really ugly. I spoke with Delta's CEO today. I, I can't tell you he was reassuring. 
I think he's, high, he's a straightforward guy. The numbers aren't that good. The bottom line, the charts as interpreted by the legendary Larry Williams, and like I said, I don't like to go against him, suggest that the broader averages could be poised for one more major move higher from next week through early January. However, he thinks that rally might not include some of the market's biggest winners, like the freight plays or the airlines. So you got to be a little more circumspect than you might like to be. All right, we got much more Mad Bunny Head, including my exclusive with Chevron. As public opinion continues to shift on fossil fuel, how can the sector reinvent itself? I'm going to ask the CEO. Then in 2019, an estimated 463 million adults were living with diabetes. That number is expected, sadly, to expand to 700 million by 2045, with the diabetes epidemic showing no signs of abating. I'll find out how Dexcom, one of our favorites, has been down a lot, though, continues to help. And it's time to do what's right. Roll up our sleeves and get jabbed. I'll tell you why I can't wait to get my COVID vaccine. So stay with Kramer. You know what's the best performing sector since Election Day? You'll never believe it. Energy. And when I talk about energy, I mean fossil fuels. With multiple COVID vaccines right around the corner, the economy will soon be able to reopen which means more demand for oil and gas. Regular viewers know that I'm not a fan of this industry anymore. I think the long-term prospects have gotten grimmer. But there are two fossil fuel stocks that I still consider investable. One of them is Chevron, the big integrated uh, that's become the king of the oils, the best of the best. Chevron's held up surprisingly well during the pandemic, and it's got a powerful safe dividend of 5.7%. The only problem, the stock is now up 35% in the last six weeks. So can it keep climbing? Let's take a closer look with Mike Worth. He's the chairman and CEO of Chevron Corporation. Get a clearer picture of the industry and where his company's headed. Mr. Worth, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, it's good to be with you. All right, so Mike, you got to solve this for me. As long as I've been in the business, I always heard there was one company that was the best, and it wasn't necessarily yours. It was a company called Exxon. There were a lot of others that were doing well. Now there's Chevron, and there really is everybody else. Everybody else being companies I'm worried about the dividend, that aren't growing production, that aren't conservative. What happened at Chevron that the other guys should have listened to? Well, Jim, different companies have made different choices as, uh, as we came into this and as, as we've gone through this. Some have changed their dividend policies. Some have changed their strategies. Some have changed their financial priorities. We haven't. Our dividend is secure. As you mentioned, our balance sheet is strong. Our strategies are intact. And our investors know they can count on us. So we were, we were well prepared as, uh, as we went through this cycle. And I think that... Uh, people realize that we've been constant at a time when uh, many others have changed. Now, you have, when it's necessary, been aggressive. For instance, you you were very aggressive in the Gulf of Mexico, drilling wells that are going to produce oil for years. They they don't run out those wells. I mean, that's just something that you did. Everybody else went away from it. How did you have the vision to do that? Well, Jim, it's a long-term business. Uh, Demand for energy in the world is enormous. Seven and a half billion people on the planet today. By 2040, there will be nine billion, and, and, and all of them deserve the things that affordable, reliable energy can provide. So we've got to take a long view uh, on investments, and at the same time, you've got to take a short view in terms of being prepared for markets that are very volatile and unpredictable. So it's an and world. We actually have to do both. We have to look out the front window 20 years down the road 
And, and we're going to look out the, uh, the window of the house today and see what's going on in the world today and manage our way through both of those. All right, so let's see if we can go out 20 years. You bought a company called Nova. I've known them well. Terrific. I visited Leviathan. It's an incredible field in Mediterranean off the coast of Israel. I could see a visionary saying, you know what? It's time to disenfranchise Gazprom, Russian company, bringing its gas to the West and make it so there's a pipeline from Israel all the way up through Central Europe. And that could be something that's a 20, 25 year project. Pie in the sky? Well, that's certainly one of the opportunities to commercialize what is a very large gas resource in the waters of the eastern Mediterranean off Israel. Right now it feeds markets in Israel, Egypt and Jordan. There are opportunities to take it as liquefied natural gas to other markets. And certainly longer term, these types of resources often lend themselves to infrastructure developments to feed markets. Europe is not, not far away. So those are all options to uh, commercially develop that resource and supply markets in an affordable, reliable manner. So that, that's the type of thing that our company does really well. And uh, it's a long-term view that we have to have to sustain our company. At the same time, I've noticed that you always seem to be able to have common ground with whoever's in the White House. I'm not going to try to say you have to do this, do that, because you're a reasonable person that's come up with it. But if you have a really aggressive climate change president and team, uh, is it perhaps possible that they may make it so that, you, that you're not able to drill your own properties? Well, Jim, we've been in business for over 140 years. We've worked with Republican administrations, with Democrat administrations, with uh, split government with unified government, and we always start with common ground. Government wants uh, economic uh, development and prosperity for its people. Uh, governments want a, a cleaner environment. Uh, we look for the common ground, and there's always common ground because we're a critical part of the economy. We may not agree 100% with any given administration on everything, but there's usually much more we're aligned on than we're different, you know, have different views on. And then we sit down at the table and we work our way through those things where we've got different points of view. And, and that's exactly what we expect to do uh, with this administration and every other one that follows. No, but, Mike, how do you sit down with fund managers, particularly younger fund managers, who say, you know what, we are about trying to be carbon neutral, uh, even make it so that it carbon negative, so to speak, so Chevron can never be a holding of ours. No matter how much clamor you think that works good and they have great dividend policy, we can't own it. What happens if too many managers start thinking that way? Well, Jim, you know what managers really want out of our industry and out of our company? It's better returns. And I boil our strategy down to four simple words. Higher returns, lower carbon. And we need to do both. And we need to find ways to invest in things that are good for shareholders and also are good for the environment. If we do just, just invest in things that are good for the shareholders and ignore the environment, that's not sustainable. And if all we do is invest in things that have an environmental case and they don't create value and returns for shareholders, that's not sustainable either. So we sit down with uh, portfolio managers of all ages and all levels of experience and talk about how to deliver higher returns and lower carbon. And, and that's what people, that's, I think that's what investors are looking for. Well, how about another way to look at it? Some people feel, some managers say, Jim, do you not see the future? Do you not see Tesla? Do you not see the hydrogen fuel cells? Do you know that there's no room in a portfolio because it's going to happen faster than you think? You think that demand's big out 20, 30 years, which, by the way, I do. But they feel no. Mike, they feel it's gone away faster than you and I think. And that has caused me to pull in my horns about a group I really like. Well, Jim, we embrace a lower carbon future. We expect a lower carbon energy system. In fact, the energy system's always been moving towards lower carbon. 150 years ago, coal came along and displaced wood and peat. 
And then you had oil and gas. And then you had nuclear, hydro, wind, solar, hydrogen now. The, the, the energy system's always been in transition, and we're investing today in, I'll give you an example, renewable natural gas. If you've ever driven by a dairy farm or a feedlot, there's a, there's a certain aroma that you, you may uh, recall. Mm-hmm. We're actually capturing the waste products from dairy farms now, fermenting the, uh, those products to create the natural gas product, cleaning it up, moving it into a pipeline so it can displace fossil fuels. So we reduce methane emissions and we create a saleable, renewable product. So we're investing in things like that. We're investing in nuclear fusion. We're investing in hydrogen. We're investing in technologies uh, that can scale and make a real difference and be part of a lower carbon energy system. Uh, This is the history of our company, and and I believe it's the future of our company. How about putting uh, hydrogen fuel cells, all of your incredible gas stations, how about making that statement, saying to the rest of the industry and all the ESG enthusiasts, look, we are not doing something right now that's economic, but it is going to kill it in the five, six years. You could do that, Mike. You're the visionary and you got the balance sheet. Well, we're working on these kinds of things, Jim. We, we, I come back to it's an and world. We've got to have higher returns and lower carbon. And so we've got to find things that work for shareholders and work for the environment. And that's exactly what we're working on. So I think... I think you're going to see our company and you'll see others in our industry that continue to find solutions. And, and this is a challenge that is too big for any one company, any one industry or any one, one country in the world to completely address. Uh, we're going to work in partnership with others and uh, continue to advance uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the state of the energy system, which will only grow. Well, Mike, you've always been the, uh, you've been the voice of reason. Your company's been the scientific company all along. People should know that. Chevron has always had the most scientists and engineers at the top. Mike Worth, Chairman and CEO of Chevron. Great to see you, sir. Jim, good to be with you. They have money's back after the break. Is it time to circle back to Dexcom, the leading maker of continuous blood sugar monitors for people with diabetes? This stock's been a phenomenal long-term performer, and it's had a huge run earlier this year because diabetes is a major risk factor for COVID. But in the last few months, Dexcom's been hammered, falling from $456 in August to $333 today. What happened? Well, some of this is because the stock got overheated. I mean, after all, despite the pullback, it's still up more than 50% for the year. Some of it's because when Dexcom reported in late October, the quarter was imperfect. Despite giving us a big earnings beat, the sales beat was not as large as has been in recent quarters. And management indicated that their new blood sugar monitor is only rolling out in several key markets next year. It won't be in all the core markets until 2022. In response, the stock got hurt. Now, today, Dexcom held an investor meeting, but the stock ended up selling off down 4%. Management guided for 15 to 20% growth through 2025. And that is falling a little short of what the analysts were looking for. So could this be the buying opportunity? Or or do we need to be concerned that maybe the growth is slowing? Let's check in with, with Kevin Sayers, the chairman and CEO of Dexcom, to get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. Sayer, welcome back to Mad Money. Hi, Jim. Good to see you again. All right, so Kevin, I know better than to buy into this whole idea that people are looking for, say, 20 to 25, and you said you're going to do something that's pretty similar to that. Was there really a guy down today at your meeting? No, there wasn't a guy down today, Jim. This is a, a long-term plan. Uh, this is based upon some very detailed assumptions, mass adoption of the technology, and the typical conservatism we use in building things out. You know, back in 2018, 
we said we'd be between two and 2.5 million by the end of 2023. We hit that in a couple of years. Uh, I, I'm not saying we're going to do this in a couple of years, but this is as we look at competitive factors, market growth, market dynamics, adoption. There certainly are accelerants uh, that could be in our model as we go into other markets or type two adoption goes more rapidly, type one adoption goes more rapidly. But what we presented today was a base case that we feel is very responsible. And there's a lot of work to do uh, to do this. Okay. And, and, and so that, that's what we presented today. We're more bullish about the business than we've ever been. Okay, the reason I but say we, is because there was a downgrade earlier in November from an analyst who was saying, look, they're downgrading Dexcom to underweight uh, because of Abbott's Libra three approval, uh, recent approval in, in, in Europe, but also because uh, the, the price gap is closing. Uh, Abbott's making a bit of a price war. Um, I don't know. I've been hearing this story for years. Every time Libra comes out, is there really anything? Is there a real price war? Are they cutting prices? Is it hurting Dexcom pricing? We have been adjusting our pricing for the past several years as we move to different channels. For example, when we got Medicare approval back in 2017, that was a lower annual value per customer than we'd had before. We've also chosen to move our product to the pharmacy channel as much as we can in the U.S. to make that patient experience easier for patients to get our product where they interact with our other diabetes supplies, you know, their drugs and their other things. That is a lower price channel with much better operating margins because we don't have all the other things in the middle. And as we go to international markets, reimbursement is lower. But Jim, take a look at our results. And this is a bit why I was a bit confused in Q3. We have a quarter that if you look back two years, our volumes have more than doubled. Mm-hmm. Our pricing has come down as we've shifted channels, say 20 to 30%. And our gross margins are 5% better. Who manages through a situation better than that? Well, we I- have. And it's as, as we get more access to patients, we're happy to shift into these other channels. Well, I, I think I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the shifting to the other channels. I work out, and uh, usually around 10 after 5 to quarter after 5, I see a Dexcom ad. I've been working out for 15 years at that time, never saw a Dexcom ad. But now I understand. At first, I thought, well, they must not have a lot of customers. But you're talking about bro- broadening the channel particularly in an era where there's a, a Teladoc Livongo, which gives you more awareness and you want to know where to get it. Watch TV. Uh, absolutely. That's it. Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely. We need to create more awareness. As we create more awareness, then we have to make it easier for patients to come to us. And if you look at our, our recent programs, for example, we just started a program called Hello Dexcom, where our caregivers will have samples they can give right to patients in the office and go home and try it. And we haven't had that before. And our adoption rate on those patients who have used that program so far has been outstanding. So you see the ad on television, you go to your doctor, you get hello, hello Dexcom, and we're off to the races. Okay, now, also, why, why isn't anyone talking about that you posted uh, massive growth in New Year's, unit growth of 40%? I mean, to me, that's what's relevant. That is completely what's relevant. And it's not important just to grow them. You've got to grow them and keep them. And our our customer satisfaction scores, our retention rate, our utilization has never been higher than it is with our G6 system now. And G7, what what, can you give us a little feel for it? I mean, some people are already saying it's late. I don't know. I mean, I I don't know who says this stuff. Kevin, I've known you for a long time, and you've (laughs) never said anything that didn't happen. So I'm trying to figure out how people get, well, it's late when I said, no, no, he said this. He told us exactly this on air. So let's, let's take a step back. We did say, as COVID started, 
that our clinical studies were get, were being were going to be delayed six months, right. and they have been. But we're back in the clinic, Jim. We just completed a, a first phase of our G7 studies that we'll use to file for approval in Europe. Uh, we have more data coming because an approval in the United States requires and a very ex extensive data set. Uh, G7, we're getting ready to scale to manufacture the data from it. And our early study shows the product performs beautifully. And, and the best way I can describe G7 is everything patients love about G6, G7 does better. Even down to the simple fact it's 60% smaller. Wow. But everything else, new app, more connectivity, better security, you name it. G7 is going to be a complete change in what we've done in the past. Oh. And, and so there has been a six-month delay for the studies. And after that, we'll see how everything else shakes out with the FDA, with COVID, with trials. We haven't given firm launch dates every place else, but it will come, and we are doing remarkably well. All right. right. Look, you're a straight shooter, and these people, everyone always wants to take a shot at for as long as I've known you and your predecessor. And all you do is deliver, deliver, deliver. Nobody seems to be able to lay a glove on you because you're a better company with a better product. Devin Sayer, Chairman, President, CEO, coming off his, uh, his analyst day meeting from Dexcom. Great to see you, sir. Jim, good to see you again. Thanks for having us on the show. All right. Man, money's back here to the break. It is time! It's time to make a ring! What's up, Rob? First one of the series. Bye bye bye. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski dead on the lightning round. I'm going to start with Bruce in Florida. Bruce! Kramer, how are you? I am good, Bruce. How about you? I'm doing well. Kramer, this is Bruce. Uh, Peg Lake Pete, Pensacola Beach, and uh, just the big oyster bushwhacker booyah to ya. I want to go for some, why don't we go uh, fishing in Escambia Bay and we maybe catch some pompano, my friend. Oh, I'm not sure if they're running right now, but... Uh, the, the, well, that's the right, I'm not getting down the there, beach. so what's the point, what's the difference? All right, so go ahead, yeah. let's, let's do it, make some money. It's beautiful. Jim, I was just uh, holding some SLB Schlumberger. Yeah, see, the problem with Schlumberger, I mean, you know, they were saying dividends fine, dividends fine, don't worry about the dividends, dividends good, the dividends good. Whoa, bingo! So I'm not a big fan of slob anymore. Let's go to Rob in California. Rob. Hey, Jim, thanks for taking my call. Of course, Rob. Hey, I bought this stock almost four years ago at 13 a share, and today they closed around 143. Uh, in the last six months, have been on fire and up 105% this year alone. Uh, recently entered into a partnership with Rain, an organization regarding dating safety. Want to get your thoughts on the match? Oh, match is real. Match is real. We'd like that guy. Joey came on the show. Smart fella. That's a real good company. I like. Oh, come on. That's like two calls. Plus, I'm going fishing with that fella for, uh, what are we, what are we going fishing for? Red, redfish. All right, let's go with Judd in New York. Judd. Hey, Kramer, I've been watching your show since I was little with my grandmother. Just wanted to get your thoughts on Bill.com. We like this. Infrastructure software. And by the way, we like Koopa, too. Don't rule out Koopa. I'm giving you a twofer. I need to go to Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie. Hi, Kramer. Booyah. Booyah. My, my question is about Renewable Energy Group. Oh, I know these guys. Renewable fuels. Can I suggest, can I suggest that you do clean harbors? I have, I have better feel for clean harbors. They're in the safety clean. Really well run. Not a lot. You sleep at night with that. And, oh, holy cow, that's it. I spent so much time talking about the, the fishing tables with that gentleman. We're going for the white fish there. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round. 
is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. I can't wait to roll up my sleeves and get jabbed with the vaccine. I don't care how much it hurts. I want to be able to stop worrying about the darn virus. When I first started warning you about COVID-19 way back in February, I was afraid we wouldn't be able to stop it, at least not with medicine. So I sit in for a long siege. I read the literature. I listened to dozens of public health experts, the virologists. The general consensus was that, at best, it might take a year and a half to get a vaccine, maybe two. Before COVID, we'd never been able to develop a new vaccine in less than four years. Mumps was the record. And as someone who had mumps, I can tell you it didn't seem all that mysterious. But the novel coronavirus, at first we didn't know how it spread. We focused on surfaces and handshakes, not the aerosol spray from your mouth. We didn't know when you were infectious. We didn't know what was going to happen after you got infectious. The virus steamrolled over since the spring, and we had no coherent strategy. No idea what worked. In the end, the White House had no choice but to take action, using billions of dollars from the last stimulus package to set up Operation Warp Speed, an initiative designed to speed up development and production of vaccine, therapeutics, tests. And you know what? It worked. I know it's easy to be cynical right now. It's easy to be scared. More than 280,000 Americans have died. Millions are out of work. Businesses are closing all over the place. The Democrats and Republicans in Congress can't seem to reach a compromise. Even when our leaders come up with good ideas, they pair them with bad ones. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin suggests giving households $600 per person. Good! But to pay for those checks, his plan includes no money for expanded unemployment benefits much at all. And that's dooming a deal. I say, why not give both? I mean, I think we should throw money at people like, like every other developed country is doing. More important, we have to pay people to get the vaccine, not just because it will save lives, although it will, but also because it will breathe new life into the economy. I bet you if you pay people to take it, a lot of the anti-vaxxers will suddenly be singing a different tune. Now, I doubt the feds will do that. But even if the government does nothing else, what we're seeing right now is nothing short of miraculous people. We were told a vaccine would take a minimum of 18 months. Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, maybe not so much, but did it in eight months. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Pfizer and Moderna are unbelievable. I know the Pfizer vaccine has freezer requirements that make it tough to transport. The Moderna vaccine may be harder to manufacture in bulk, but we could be in for a terrific surprise from J&J. Stocks saying that. Now, I was worried we wouldn't get any more news on their vaccine till the middle of the first quarter. But with COVID spreading like wildfire, their clinical trials are proceeding much faster than anticipated. The grim scenario in the U.S. and Europe makes it easier for them to assess the vaccine's effectiveness. The great thing about J&J is they're partnering with Emergent Biosolutions. We've had them a bunch of times. I bet that those guys could be making a billion doses of this thing even before it gets approved. Put it all together and we could be headed for the mother of all high quality problems. Listen, people, by the middle of the first quarter, we might be looking at, write this down, a vaccine glut, not a shortage, a glut, at least in the developed world. What a fabulous problem to have, which leads me to make a bold prediction. Last February, my wife threw me a dynamite birthday party, which I eventually ruined by telling everyone this was it. The last time we'd ever have fun because of a horrifying pandemic was right around the corner. I wrecked the party. Now, I don't know if she'll throw me another party after I did last year, uh, but I want to shock people again with a new prediction. Thanks to science, we're on the cusp of having fun again. The whole thing is surreal. I don't get too far ahead of my skis here, but there's a very real chance you'll be able to get vaccinated in the next few months. Does that sound crazy to you? Hey, it sounded pretty darn crazy when I warned you about COVID last February, too. We live in an insane world, but for once, I think it's about to be insane in a good way. So take the win. 
I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you, right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now.